Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, we proudly bring to you Mormonism Live! Shut up and sit down. Thank you. Uh, good evening. Bill Real, how are you doing? Happy Wednesday. It is Wednesday, October 13th, 2021. Uh, folks, uh, just a little FYI. Uh, again, I think we haven't asked for donations in a couple of weeks. Donations have, have been a little slow the last month or two. Somebody did come through RFM and uh, donate a couple of, of grand to us uh, last week, which I was super appreciative of. Uh, Me too. I'm just finding out about it now. Yeah, look at that. Look at that. So, you went to Vegas this past weekend, didn't you? Uh, I did go to Vegas this last week, and I went to Reggae Rise Up, which is a two-day uh, music fest where on um, there's two stages in Las Vegas on Fremont Street, and there is a band playing at all times on one of those two stages for about 24 hours during the two-day period. And uh, it was a ton of fun. I really enjoyed it. Dirty Heads. Dirty Heads was the closing band on uh, Sunday night. And uh, that's how we closed out the concert. If you're a Dirty Heads fan, so am I. Um, well, I, I brought it up because it sounds like it might have set you back, I don't know, a couple of grand or something. It wasn't too bad. I think tickets were <laughs> 100 bucks. No, no. I, I see the connection. So that, was the connect that was the connection. Okay. No, I'll put no, a five no. point on it. No, no, no. The my personal finances and the podcast are separate <laughs> away. I know you are you are immaculate. Well, I, again, I appreciate it, but folks, you're welcome to go on to because we what, try to be transparent, whereas the church is not. So if you go to Mormon uh, MormonDiscussions.org, there's a spot in the header that talks about the financials, and uh, you can look at past financial statements. Um, leading up to like 2017, we again, I'm getting off in the weeds here, but uh, up to 2017. And then I think 2018 was one of these years where we made less than 50,000 and we only had to file the 990N postcard. But 2019, 2020, and then we close out 21 here, which is fast approaching, that one will be up there as well. So we are transparent. Folks can see what we bring in and where it goes. Uh, you're welcome to that. We have gotten way off in the weeds over what was just supposed to be a simple joke. And it was supposed to be just me asking <laughs> for donations. So, folks. Oh, um, right, right, right. And thank you so much to that person. I mean, yeah. $2,000 donation. Thank you so much. Yeah, they, they came with a little note which said that they are hoping that you'll cover General Conference again, just like you did in last April. I talked with Jonathan Streeter about that this morning. We, we're not going to be able to get right on it, but it's on the burner it may be on a little bit of the back burner but it's on the burner okay people will be look forward will be looking forward to seeing that folks if you wouldn't mind go to mormonismlive.org click the donate button what we really are hoping to get over time is recurring subscribers folks who will donate uh, five bucks a month ten dollars a year 25 bucks a year something like that 
those donations are much more dependable than a one-time donation, although we appreciate all of our donors. And we're just going to keep producing great content, which leads to tonight, more great content. Radio Free Mormon, you're in charge tonight. You called this uh, Mick, what was it? McBeth McDonald's and Mormon? No, Macbeth and Mormonism. McDonald's and Mormonism. That's a different one. That's on the word of wisdom. That's oh, not yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've seen those high priests. They they aren't light by any means. No, something's got to take the place of all that coffee and alcohol they're missing. That's right. Um, so I'll turn it over to you, my friend. I've got all the video clips ready to rock and roll and uh, take us on a little ride. Well, I want to ask you something first because I've been concerned, and I expressed this to you earlier, about whether anybody's going to show up to hear a show titled Macbeth and Mormonism. Oh, thank you so much, uh, Mike. For your contribution there wow um but what what is the number of people watching can you tell me that bill i cannot see it from here so as of right this moment we just went live so we're at 163 um but by the time we get rocking and rolling we end up usually in the mid 300s well fantastic i will tell you i'm happy to talk about Macbeth tonight because that is something that i have been wanting to talk about for at least a year now and something very specific about this play and how it interacts with Mormonism. The first thing I want to say about Shakespeare is, of course, I'm a big fan of Shakespeare. I don't know anybody who's had any dealings with Shakespeare who's not a big fan. Uh, there was a um, an interview with Charlton Heston. Charlton Heston did some Shakespeare in his life, as most actors have. And he it was later in his life, and he was being interviewed. And I remember him saying, you know, in 100 years, Nobody's going to remember Planet of the Apes. Nobody's going to remember Omega Man. Nobody's going to remember all these movies that I made, including Ben-Hur, right? That's a famous movie. Especially the Mark Wahlberg version of Planet of the Apes. Well, right, right. (laughs) I think he was talking about his version. But anyway, but the whole point was that in 100 years, nobody's going to remember any of this. But you know what he said? They'll still be doing Shakespeare. Shakespeare. Yeah, you, you're right. These are classics. And uh, I studied them in high school and a little bit in college in my literature classes and um, not as well versed anywhere near as you. But it is important work that I think shares a common human themes in each of those. Yes, he writes of the human condition and he yeah. writes very well, which would be an understatement. There's yeah. Shakespeare and then there's everybody, everybody else. Knows. Yeah, you got it, my friend. Right. And I think that pretty much everybody in the Western tradition would probably agree with that assessment, if not come and talk to me after class. But Macbeth is one of the the very famous plays. It's a great play to be talking about here in October. It's October 13th, 2021. It is the season of the witch, or perhaps to be more accurate when talking about Macbeth, it is the season of the three witches. Macbeth is a great play for this time of year. Not only does it have three witches, it also has a bloody ghost in it so what could be better than that but it also talks about something else which we'll get to it's called equivocation we'll get to that here in just a second but there's also this connection between shakespeare and joseph smith and what i mean by that is this even people who don't know anything about shakespeare are aware of the fact that there are people who say that shakespeare didn't write his own plays You've heard of that, right, Bill? Yeah, and and I've also heard that some of these works that are attributed to Shakespeare, not only did he maybe not write any of them, but like some of the later ones maybe weren't his authorship, and they've done word print analysis, which we're familiar with here in Mormonism. Right. (laughs) Yes, we are. But here's the deal. 
When you actually get into Shakespeare studies, and I'm an amateur, I think when it comes to Shakespeare, everybody's an amateur. But when you get into Shakespeare studies and you're reading the people who really know what they're talking about and have studied this in depth, nobody thinks that. Nobody believes that. This is a fringe position held by a cluster of fringe people who say Shakespeare didn't write his own plays. It must have been this Earl of something or this person over here, or, you know, Francis Bacon. They come up with these different names. But the thing that's interesting about it and the connection it has with Joseph Smith and Mormonism is, can you guess the reason why? First off, let me back up and say, anybody who's familiar with the historical record knows Shakespeare wrote his own plays. Okay. Yeah. It would have been ridiculous to think that anybody else wrote them because there are other playwrights who are his friends at the time and they're documenting stuff. Yeah, he wrote the plays. Do you know why it is that there are some French people who argue that Shakespeare did not write the plays. Mm. Well, because he wasn't educated enough. Mm. Where does that seem? Yeah. Doesn't it sound familiar? Yeah. And it was very interesting to me uh, that that's the reason. That it's not like it's based on evidence that this person wrote them. Instead, it's because there is a feeling among some French people that Shakespeare could not have written the place because he didn't have enough formal education to have written these things. They're way beyond him. It must have been someone else. And frequently we hear that sort of thing with regard to Joseph Smith and the Book of Mormon from apologists, from apologists, excuse me. Mm. Excuse me for a second here. I'm going to have to cough. There, I mute myself so I don't deafen you. I like it. Oh, thank you. Um, but also, there is another apologetic that's gaining some traction, and I hear it more and more frequently. And the argument goes like this, that uh, if you, as a non-Mormon or as a critic of the Book of Mormon, a non-believer is probably a better way to put it, if you cannot explain to me, the apologist, how it is that Joseph Smith wrote or dictated the Book of Mormon, then it must have been divine. It must have been a miracle. It must have happened the way God, that, that Joseph Smith said it happened, right? You've heard this, I'm sure. Yeah, in fact, RFM, I don't know if you're if you're leading the witness or not, but uh, I was in a recent conversation behind the scenes with Brian Hales, where Brian uh, made the comment that if I couldn't come up with a viable way in which the Book of Mormon was written, according to him, not according to me. I've, I'm, I'm sufficiently happy with Grant Palmer's book and a few extra things added in. Yeah. But if I couldn't satisfy Brian's uh, perspective of how the Book of Mormon got written, then it must be divine. Right. Well, here's the thing. I've been giving that some thought myself. And you had posted the promo to this program. I think it's on your webpage or your Facebook page. And there was a listener who wrote in with a wonderful answer. And I want to read that this. This is Diana McMillan. Thank you, Diana McMillan, for this. Here's her answer to this, because I don't think that's a very convincing argument. I know they think it's sort of like the King's X, right? This is the Trump card. Boom, I win, because you can't explain it. You can't come up with a cohesive theory. But here's what she says. I, I have my own answers here, which I'll get to here in a second. She writes, it's very unusual for a 24-year-old farmer to dictate a 500-page book. Very unusual. Therefore, the more probable explanation is an angel appearing and telling the farmer about secret golden plates that will kill 
any persons who look at them and which contain a history of a real but vanished 1,000 years civilization, very similar to the mound builder's myth, which was popular at the time and which the farmer translated by a rock in a hat. Clearly, the more probable explanation. Clearly. So that's her comment. Joseph I think that's Bray. great. Oh, well, I'm sorry. Did you say something? Joseph a break. <laughs> well, yes. So that's a great one. And I wanted to uh, read that on the air because I thought it was so good before I got to my three potential answers. All of my three are one-liners. So if you want to write these down, go ahead. Number one is this, because you can sort of turn this back on the person who's asking the question and ask the same question in a little bit of a different way. Number one. So if you can't describe exactly where the Book of Mormon took place geographically, it must be fiction. Hmm. Same kind of uh, argument, but turned around about the geography of the Book of Mormon. Okay. Hmm. Number two. Well, if you ask me to explain how the Book of Mormon was dictated, and if I can't do it, then it must be divine. Here's my answer number two. Well, I don't know how a car works either, but that doesn't mean God lives in Detroit. <laughs> uh, okay. I think that's probably the funniest one. Number three, I think maybe the best because it has to do with a magician. I love magic. And so the third answer is, so if a magician does a magic trick, I can't figure out. That means it must be a miracle. Right. And isn't that how all magic works? Like when we're little kids, we go to sit and watch a magician. And the fact that we don't know what he's doing, we believe there's something supernatural at work. Mm -hmm. And the reality is it's, it's all sleight of hand. It's all smoke and mirrors. It's all distraction. Right. So that's that first part that we wanted to talk about. Now we're going to get to my experiences with Macbeth. And then we're going to link it into Mormonism because there's a direct connection, I think. My first experience with Shakespeare was with the play Macbeth. I didn't know it was Macbeth at the time. I'm a kid. I'm like 10 or 11 years old. I'm living at the Village Green Apartments in Kent. And we moved around a lot when I was a kid. And I was frequently the new kid in the neighborhood and the new kid at school, which presented its own challenges and difficulties. However, I had purchased a book. And when I say purchased the book, what I mean is, do you remember, you're not as old as I am, but way back in the 70s, there were companies like Columbia House who would send out these mailings. They would just send them out blanket to everybody, right? It was junk mail. But in them, they would say, okay, here's a coupon and you can request any of five of five books from this catalog that we're sending along with it. Five hardback books and we will send them to you for free. The only catch is that you are now on the hook to buy at least one book a month for a year at regular book club prices, right? Mm, yeah. So I'm 10 or 11. This looks like a good way to get some, some free books. So I send it and I get the books. And then I think I let my dad deal with Columbia House after that. But um, the reason I bring this up is because one of the books was called uh, The Diary of a Witch. I'm pretty sure. And I don't know if I ever read the book, but I did open at least the first part. And on the front page or the frontispiece or whatever, one of those opening pages, right? It had double, double, toil and trouble, fire, burn and cauldron bubble. Mm. And then it went on. Of course, that's from Macbeth, right? 
It may have even said Macbeth at the bottom, but the, at that age, who the heck's Macbeth? But this really, really caught my attention. I thought that was really fascinating. And I committed it to memory. Why? Well, here's what happened. Not that long after that, I'm outside, I'm in the parking lot or the playground or whatever, I'm by myself and these other bigger kids come walking by. It was sort of getting toward evening. And they were, I don't know, they seemed a little bit sinister to me. It looked like they were up to no good. It looked like they had some ideas for me, which might not have been in my best interest. And so I just started glaring at them with the most malevolent glare I could muster at 10 or 11 years old. And I started chanting, double, double, toil and trouble, fire burning, cauldron bubble, double, double, toil. And I just did it over and over. And they got this weird look on their face. And I think they laughed nervously, but they left and they left me alone. So mission accomplished. Thank you, Shakespeare. Mm. Well, I thought that was all. But a few nights later, uh, we're up there in the apartment. 324 was the number on the third floor. And uh, my dad tells me, hey, um, I need to talk to you outside. I said, okay, well, this isn't good for me. So, but he takes me actually outside into the hallway, outside our front door. So we're there in the hallway and my dad starts saying to me, well, there's been some people uh, who sort of complained to me about something that they said that you did the other day with their kids, something about chanting, like witchcraft stuff. And I guess it really freaked them out and they're really uncomfortable. So they complained to me about it. And uh, did you do that? And I said, oh yeah, yeah, I did that. He says, okay, well, I think it'd probably be better if you didn't do that anymore. Mm -hmm. And I remember even at the time that my dad was having a hard time not cracking a smile. Mm -hmm. So I got the message, didn't do it anymore. My first experience with Shakespeare and my first experience with Macbeth. Okay, now let's talk about Macbeth and equivocation. There are a whole lot of themes that run through Macbeth. Equivocation is one of them. And what equivocation means is saying one thing, but meaning another. It means using words to convey one message to a person. It's the message that you want them to understand, that you mean for them to understand, but it's actually not the real message. That's something that you're keeping back and that you have as a secret to yourself, okay? So that's what equivocation is, at least 400 years ago. I think it's still a, a meaning for it today, though sometimes that word gets used in other context. So let's talk about Macbeth, all right? Macbeth is a general. He's also a thane, right? Which is like uh, Scottish royalty. It might be like a, a duke or something in England. I'm sure that uh, Nemo will correct me or Peter Bleakley will correct me if I get this wrong. But anyway, it's kind of a, a royal title, right? But they're all these things and they're under the king. So they have to be loyal to the king. And Macbeth is the Thane of Gloms, G-L-A-M-I-S. Pretty sure it's pronounced Gloms, okay? And there's this massive war. Macbeth opens in the middle of this massive battle because there are people who are coming, they're attacking Scotland. And Macbeth is out there with the other generals and their armies, and they're fighting against these enemies. And Macbeth is like a superhero. He is so awesome. He is cutting up people right and left. He's like Conan the Barbarian. In fact, there's this great line at the beginning where it's described as his, his sword smoked with bloody execution. So he saves the day in this battle. And the king's really thrilled about this, okay? But unfortunately, not all the thanes were as loyal as Macbeth was. There's another thane whose name was MacDonald. 
and he's the fame of Cawdor, C-A-W-D-O-R, I think. So he's another thing, but he actually rebelled against the king and took sides with the enemies in this battle. Well, the enemies were defeated. MacDonald was defeated as well. I think it's uh, spelled MacDonald in the text, but um, regardless of that, he gets executed because he's a traitor. And the king's going, okay, what do I do? What do I do? Well, I know Macbeth, he's the great hero today. I will make him not only Thane of Gloms, which he already is, I'm also going to make him Thane of Cawdor. So he'll get the title, he'll get the possessions, he'll get the property or whatever it is of this other Thane who just got executed. Now, Macbeth doesn't know any of this because he's off fighting, right? So now he's walking with another general, his good friend, Banquo, across the heath. And then they run into these three witches. Technically, they're never called witches in the play. They're called weird sisters and some other things, but we'll just call them witches because everybody understands that. And they greet Macbeth and they say, Hail, Macbeth, Thane of Gloms. Hail, Macbeth, Thane of Cawdor. Hail, Macbeth, that shall be king hereafter. And so Macbeth's going, well, this is weird. What are these people doing? And um, another, a bunch of other stuff happens. But let's just say, okay, they disappear. So finally, uh, Macbeth uh, gets to where the king is. And he finds out that in his absence, while he's been off fighting, he got made the Thane of Cawdor. And he's going, wait a second. How did those witches know that? How were they able to predict the future? They knew I was Thane of Cawdor before I knew it. And then he starts thinking, well, if they were right about that, might they not be right about me becoming the king? So that's what starts all this, right? And he starts thinking about it and he writes to his, his wife, Lady Macbeth, and the letter gets to her and he's telling her about what the three witches said and what he's thinking about it and hinting about maybe the idea, perhaps um, the Macbeth should give a helping hand to the king to um, what? Make his date with destiny and fate and death a little quicker than it would normally be. So Macbeth gets back to the castle. By the way, good luck, good luck. The king and his entourage are coming to the castle, to Macbeth's castle, to spend the night, to honor him with their presence because he's such a great hero. So timing's right. Everything's shaping up for this, except that Macbeth comes to his senses and says, what was I thinking? No, I'm not going to kill the king for God's sake. I, he's just given me all these honors. He's a great king. Everybody loves him. I love him. Uh, forget about it. I'm not going to do it. And that's when Lady Macbeth steps in and she says, are you kidding me? And she challenges his manhood. She has a wonderful speech. You know, you were a man when you said that you would do this. Now you're not a man at all. And so she upbraids him and gets him to change his mind about killing the king that night in their castle. So they come up with a plan about how to do it, how to make it look like they didn't do it. We won't get into that here, but they end up killing him. And technically Macbeth does. Uh, so now the king's dead. Nobody knows about it yet because it's the middle of the night. And now dawn is coming and people are coming to uh, get the king because they got to go somewhere else. Now, here's something interesting that happens in Macbeth, which has nothing to do with equivocation, but it does have something to do with Mormonism. Pop quiz, Bill. In the Book of Mormon, chapter 3rd uh, Nephi, chapter 
eight. What is it that happens on the American continent when Jesus is killed in the old world? Do you remember? Uh, wasn't there three days of darkness? Oh, you go to the head of the class. And then there was a bunch of uh, tempest raging and fires all over the place. And uh, a lot of innocent people probably died that day. Yeah, you hit the main thing right off the bat, which was uh, chapter 8, verses 20 through 22. Everybody knows this. I'm not going to read that, okay? we got other stuff to get to. But the funny thing is that the same thing happens in Macbeth when King Duncan is murdered. So you mm. have a king, you have a royal personage who dies. The sun's supposed to come up the next day, but it doesn't. It's still as dark as night. And nobody knows that the king is dead yet. And you've got, oh, who is it? Is it going to be Banquo? Oh, excuse me. Let me find this. I've got um, two editions of Macbeth here. One is in this really, really nice book that I bought used at a ridiculously discounted price. But let me see if I can find this here. We'll skip that. Here we go. Yeah. So it's Macbeth. And I'm going to have to put on my reading glasses. I apologize. Ah, there we go. So this is going to be Act 2, Scene 4. And no, it's not Banquo, it's Ross. doesn't make any difference who it is. But uh, this old man comes up to Ross, who's one of, uh, I think he's one of the attendants of the king. He says, uh, he's talking to an old man. He says, ah, good father, thou seest the heavens. Well, let me just tell you what the old man says first. Three score and 10. So that's 70 years, right? I can remember well, within the volume of which time I have seen hours dreadful and things strange. But this sore night hath trifled former things. This is worse than anything he's ever seen before. And Ross says, ah, good father, thou seest the heavens as troubled with man's act, threaten his bloody stage. So the heavens are threatening the earth, the bloody stage of man, because of something somebody did. And then he goes on, he says, by the clock, tis day, and yet dark night strangles the traveling lamp. The traveling lamp is the sun. So he says, yet dark night strangles the traveling lamp, even though by the clock it is day. And then he asks, is it night's predominance or the day's shame that darkness doth, excuse me, that darkness does the face of earth entomb when living light should kiss it? So we have the exact same thing happening in Macbeth that happens in the Book of Mormon. There's other weird things that happen as well, which are signs that uh, nature's not happy with something that happened pretty soon. They figure out that's because the king's dead and he's been murdered. Um, so that's interesting. I, I'm not suggesting here necessarily that uh, Joseph Smith or whoever wrote the Book of Mormon was borrowing directly from Macbeth, but it's a common theme. Just as when a king is born or a royal personage is born, a new star appears in the heavens. And this we can see, of course, with the birth of Jesus. That's just a theme that applies to other people as well. Um, as long as they're important enough. But here we have this other theme that when an important person dies, well, if a light appears when they are born, when they die, then there's a preternatural darkness. So shall I go on? Let me go on from there. Do you have any comments about that? Just that, again, I'm just going to get off track a minute, but which is the three days of darkness. You know, somebody in the in the comments mentions that there's no mention in the New Testament of three days of darkness at Christ's death. Once we understand science, it really becomes absurd that there's three days of darkness in the new world, but the sun keeps coming up in the old world. Um, I remember John uh, Jack Spong or John Shelby Spong once said that if Jesus was uh, 
raising up into the into the heavens at the speed at which he ascended after his death, uh, he'd still be in this galaxy and uh, not back to Heavenly Father yet. So sometimes science uh, takes some of these myth stories and makes them a whole lot, hell of a lot harder to believe. Okay, well, let me zoom on through the plot here, okay? Because Please. we're dealing with equivocation because one of the main things that happens now is not only have the witches given the, this promise, right? That ends up being true. Well, he ends up being... He is already the Thane of Gloms. Now he's the Thane of Cowder. Now he's the king. And by the way, he ends up being a king that everybody hates. I think a lot of people suspect that he was behind the murder of the former king, whose name was Duncan. But he's just a horrible person. It's like in the, um, the Muppets Christmas Carol, even the vegetables don't like him. Nobody likes Macbeth. He's just a tyrant of a person. He starts off being a hero, and he ends up becoming this tyrant that nobody likes. And so people are defecting from him. Uh, Thanes are defecting from him. And the reason they're defecting is they're going to England. All right. And without going into too much of the plot, which doesn't concern us here, England is raising a force to come and attack Scotland and depose Macbeth and put another Scottish royal line person in his place. Okay. So that's what's going on. And now he goes to the witches because he has some questions he wants to ask them. He wants to get some assurances from them that his position is secure as king. So he goes to them, he finds them, and they produce three apparitions to answer his questions. And the first apparition says this. This is Act 4, scene, whatever it is, 1. Act 4, scene 1. First apparition says... Um, Macbeth, Macbeth, Macbeth. You can't really say it enough. It's like Marsha, Marsha, Marsha. Macbeth, Macbeth, Macbeth. Beware Macduff. Beware the Thane of Fife. Dismiss me enough. So Macduff is another very important person in the play. Uh, everybody in their dog seems to have a last name that starts with Muck. It would be like McDog. Duncan doesn't, thankfully, but there's Macbeth, there's Macduff. It's like there's McDonald. It can be like reading a Dostoevsky novel and trying to keep track of all these Russian names. But once you get used to them, you'll understand. Macbeth, Macduff, by the way, spoiler alert, Macduff is the guy who's going to end up killing Macbeth at the end of the play. Okay. And the reason he's going to do it is not only because he doesn't like him, it's because Macbeth had sent out murderers to kill all of Macduff's family, his wife and his family. Uh, so he had a reason to be mad. So that's the first thing. The second apparition now says this, be bloody, bold, and resolute. Laugh to scorn the power of man, for none of woman born shall harm Macbeth. Okay, so Macbeth says, well, then live, Macduff. What need I fear of thee? Because nobody can kill me. No man, it says, for none of woman born shall harm Macbeth. So he's got a promise of invincibility from the three witches. And the third thing is this. Um, be lion-metalled, proud, and take no care who chafes, who frets, or where conspirers are. Macbeth shall never vanquished be until great Burnham Wood to high Dunsinane Hill shall come against him. So what this is saying is that uh, Macbeth obviously has a castle. The castle's name is Dunsinane, okay? So that's Macbeth's castle. Around it, there's a huge forest. Of course, there's an open area where the castle sits. But around that is a huge forest. And the name of the forest is Burnham. It's Burnham Wood. 
So what they're saying is Macbeth shall never vanquished be until great Burnham Wood, the forest, to high Dunsinane Hill, which is where the castle is on top of the hill, shall come against him. And Macbeth says, well, that will never be. Who can impress the forest? In other words, who can draft the forest or bid the tree unfix his earthbound root? So now he's getting all these promises from the witches that not only is he invincible, but also no one is ever, ever going to vanquish him until the forest marches against the castle. So he's feeling pretty good now, right? And he goes back, but he's in a bad, he's in bad shape because nobody likes him. And you got this big English force who's marching up through Scotland to attack him in his castle. And he's got people right and left who are defecting and joining the English force, but he still has people who will fight for him. Okay. So now here comes the problem. Here comes the big, the big climax in act five scene. Let me see here. Scene six. No, this is scene five, if you're following along. Because now they're right in the middle of uh, this battle, they're getting ready for the battle. The English force is coming, and a messenger comes into the throne room. And Macbeth says, uh, thou comest to use thy tongue, thy story, quickly. And the messenger, he doesn't know what to say. So he says, gracious my lord, I should report that which I say I saw, but know not how to do it. And Macbeth says, well, say, sir. By the way, uh, what the messenger is trying to say is, I got to back up and give you this, okay? Because all the English people, they're coming through Burnham Wood as they approach the castle. And in a previous scene, the leader says, um, we know they've got scouts out and they want to know how big our force is, how many troops we have. And we don't want them to know that right off the bat. So here's the idea. Everybody cut off a branch from a tree in the forest and carry it over you as a shield. And it'll all be this huge shield of tree branches. And we'll carry that with us out into the field until we're ready to attack. And then we'll get rid of them and draw our swords, right? So this is what the messenger has seen, what he's trying to relate to Macbeth. And Macbeth says, well, say, sir. And messenger says, as I did stand my watch upon the hill, I looked toward Burnham, the forest, right? And anon, which means soon, and anon, methought, the wood began to move. And Macbeth, you know, he starts crapping himself, as you can imagine, right? And he says, liar and slave. And the messenger says, let me endure your wrath. If it not, if it be not so, with, within this three mile, may you see it coming. I say a moving grove. So there's a moving forest. Burnham Wood is coming toward, is marching toward the castle. So Macbeth starts realizing that maybe he's been tricked by the witches, that they spoke to him in a double sense, that they are what they were referred to earlier as imperfect speakers. And Macbeth says, if thou speakest false upon the next tree, shalt thou hang alive till famine cling thee. If thy speech be sooth, which means truth, if thy speech be sooth, I care not if thou dost for me as much. So if you're, what you're saying is true, you may as well hang me on the next tree. And then he says this wonderful line. This one's memorable. Okay. He says, I pull in resolution. In other words, he was so resolute because he knew that he was invincible, that he couldn't be vanquished until the force comes against the castle. And here comes the force against the castle. He says, I pull in resolution 
and begin to doubt the equivocation of the fiend that lies like truth. Fantastic line. Mm. I begin to doubt the equivocation of the fiend that lies <laughs> like truth. And then he says, he's quoting, he's paraphrasing them. Fear not till Burnham Wood do come to Dunsinane. And now a wood comes toward Dunsinane, arm, arm, and out. If this, which he avouches, does appear, there is nor flying hints, nor tarrying here. If he's saying, if it's true that this wood is approaching, there's no staying here or leaving. So we're going to have to go out there and fight. Okay. Now, there's a whole lot of fight, a lot of fighting, but Macduff finally finds Macbeth. And there's this big one-on-one -on -one conflict. It's like Alma and Amlesi, if I remember correctly from the Book of Mormon. Would that be chapter two? Possibly. Could be three. Anyway, but it's the leaders finally get to face off against each other, right? So it's Macduff, it's Macbeth. Technically, Macduff's not a leader, but he kind of is. Anyway, these are the guys who have it between them. And here is what happens in Act 5, Scene 8, where Macduff finally finds him. And so they're fighting, they're fighting, they're fighting. Nobody gets wounded, nobody gets killed. And at this point, Macbeth says, Thou losest labor. You're wearing yourself out for nothing. As easy mayest thou the entrenchant air with thy keen sword impress as make me bleed. Okay. So you're just as likely to make the sword to cut the air and hurt the air as you are to make me bleed with that sword. Why? Because he says, let fall thy blade on vulnerable crests. I bear a charmed life, which must not yield to one of woman born. So he's repeating the same charm that he has from the witches, right? He's still counting on this charm, even though the woods come against the castle. And that was really unpleasant and unlooked for. <laughs> he's still got this charm. He's invulnerable. And Macbeth, Macduff says in response, despair thy charm and let the angel whom thou still hast served tell thee Macduff was from his mother's womb untimely ripped. Okay, so what he's saying is, yeah, I wasn't born of a woman. Uh, I was a C-section birth. So this is another example of the equivocation that the witches did to Macbeth, giving him this promise, which seemed to be of invulnerability, but it wasn't completely. And by the way, uh, all due respect to J.R.R. Tolkien, this is the same kind of trick that was played in Lord of the Rings. Remember Return of the King and Eowyn, who's out fighting mm -hmm. the, the witch king of Agmar, Angmar, out the Battle of Pelennor Fields. Anyway, I'm geeking out. But remember, because he has the same charm, no man can kill him. That's his charm. And he, he tells that to her, and then she pulls off her helmet, reveals that she's a woman, says, I am no man, then drives her sword right into him, kills him. Mm. Okay. So it's the same kind of idea, but uh, Shakespeare was doing it in, in Macbeth mm, 300 plus years before. Tolkien wrote The Lord of the Rings. Okay, so uh, they end up fighting and Macbeth gets killed. And that's kind of the end of the play. But before he's killed, Macbeth says this. After Macduff tells him, hey, I wasn't born of a woman. Sorry, pal. Macbeth says this. Accursed be that tongue that tells me so, for it hath cowed my better part of man. 
and be these juggling fiends. He's talking about the witches now. <laughs> They're not around anymore. You know, they've done their bit. And be these juggling fiends no more believed that palter with us in a double sense. See, there's that idea, that double sense, that double speaking, that equivocation. And here's a beautiful line, okay? That keep the word of promise to our ear and break it to our hope. So that's what they've done to him by doing this equivocation. They kept the word of promise to his ear, but they broke it to his hopes. And that's what equivocation can do. Now, I'm going to say one other thing about equivocation here. That's the end of Macbeth for our purposes tonight. So you can all wake up and join us back again for the part where we talk about it as it relates to Mormonism. But this is um, from my other version of Macbeth that I'm using tonight. It's a Barnes and Noble book. It has a lot of great notes, helps, uh, definitions of words that are maybe not so obvious today as they were in Shakespeare's time. But here's what it talks about equivocation and gives a bit of historical background on the subject. We'll find it's alive and well in the LDS church. Of course, that's where we're heading. You're probably already way ahead of me on that. Um, there's another place in the play where someone refers to an equivocator. And it says the Porter's description of the, an equivocator alludes to the gunpowder plot of November 5th, 1605. Remember, remember the 5th of, of November, right? See, uh, more bad things than just the leaking of the policy of exclusion on November 5th, 2015 happened on that date in history. This is November 5th, 1605, which was a failed attempt by a small group of English Catholics to blow up the king and parliament. Father Henry Garnet, a Jesuit, had associated with several of the plotters and was quickly captured and imprisoned by a government eager to present the conspiracy as a Jesuit plot. Francis T Tresham, one of the plotters, excuse me, you don't have to remember these names. He's, there will be no test on this at the end. Um, Francis Tresham, one of the plotters, was discovered to have a manuscript written by Garnett, that other guy we talked about, but the manuscript is what is important. It was entitled A Treatise of Equivocation. It advocated not only giving ambiguous and evasive answers to inter interrogators, but also defended the technique of mental reservation in which one spoke words that had a misleading or false signification while adding a silent mental supplement that rendered the entire proposition truthful. I think some people have used that maybe in Temple Recommend interviews. I've heard about that. Mental reservation had a long scholastic history, but in late 16th century England, it was identified almost exclusively with the Jesuits. Sir Edward Coke, the attorney general, made Garnet's treatise a major part of the prosecution's case. And in the wake of the executions that followed, the term equivocation became infamous. This topical illusion gives equivocation a peculiar charge, but the problem of ambiguous and deceitful language begins with fair is foul and foul is fair and runs through the entire play. Because fair is foul and foul is fair, very famous. It's from Act 1, Scene 1. It's when the three witches first appear. And by the way, when it says 
fair is foul and foul is fair. Um, that could definitely include fair Mormon. <laughs> okay. So this is this whole thing about equivocation and this is 1605. And this is right before, um, I think it's right before, uh, Shakespeare writes Macbeth. So it's all in the air at the time. So now we get to talk about equivocation. By the way, do you have any any comments, Bill? Just that a few people are making comments that they're they're not understanding the connection we're making. So I just want to maybe maybe just say it a little differently, which is that as you're pointing to the witches in Macbeth, as well as other times that this happens in literature and out in the real world, is where somebody gives a message and it's intended to have you think the message means one thing, but in reality, the message is secret code for something else that you won't understand unless you're in the know or unless somebody unveils it to you. And, and as you're going to point out here in a few minutes, as you go into Mormonism, often there are talks given where somebody says something and the audience thinks maybe one thing is being said, but really the, the speaker is trying to convey something else. And once you see it, you can't unsee it. Let me, can I rephrase what you just said? Please. A speaker is saying things to give the audience a false impression, something that's not true, but using words that could be interpreted in a somewhat strange sense to mean differently than what the implication and the meaning that the speaker is trying to give. Yeah. And somebody it's, else there said double speak. Well, double speak. Yeah. That, that could certainly be uh, something you could call it. Okay. And we encounter this all the time in our lives and we certainly encounter it in the LDS church. And the one main thing I want to talk about, and here's where the video clips are folks, um, is this idea about the apostles seeing Jesus. Okay. Because over and over and over again, leaders of the church use words to convey the idea that they have seen Jesus. And yet they always say it in such a way as to be ambiguous and equivocate about it. They're trying to give you that message just the way the witches are trying to give that message to Macbeth that he was invincible and that uh, it couldn't be vanquished. And then he finds out at the end, oh crap, this is what they meant. They yeah. fooled me. Yeah, it ends up being some sort of trickery. And it's and it's another form. We talked about magic earlier. It's another form of sleight of hand. It's a distraction. You're you're being told one thing, but something else is really being said. Right. So by the way, I did an episode, it was a long time ago on Radio Free Mormon. It was called How the LDS Apostles Seen Jesus. I go over a lot of uh documentation from the church, a lot of quotes, and I come to the conclusion that it's pretty obvious that they haven't, okay? But there's a number of other things that have come up since I did that podcast that we want to talk about tonight. One of them, the first one, we're going to go chronologically, by the way. This is not going to be exhaustive, just illustrative. First one's Boyd K. Packer. This is from April General Conference of 1971. He is a newly called apostle speaking probably for the first time as an apostle, I could be wrong on that, in general conference. If it's not the first time, it's pretty, pretty close. And he gives a talk called The Spirit Beareth Record. By the way, it's really a good thing that he gave this talk in April of 1971. You know why, Bill? Uh, I know why, but I don't think the audience is going to know. Well, tell us. Well, you you and I were talking earlier that uh, the church only has so much material up online. 
Um, this church is supposed to be alleged to be led by prophets, seers, and revelators. But it seems like if you go before that date, RFM, as you pointed out, uh, I think this morning to me, um, you can't find anything earlier. It's like they really don't want you to watch the video clips or read the articles and the things written and taught by prophets prior to that date. The church has nothing on General Conference from before 1971 on their mm. website. So that's why I say it's lucky it was April of 1971. Otherwise, we wouldn't be able to access it as easily. But here we go. Now, there are three clips from this talk. I would urge you to go and read the thing in its entirety. I'm not trying to take anything out of context. Please look at it if you wish. But I've got these three clips because this is a theme that he brings up and returns to and then returns to finally again in his talk. Do you have that? The first clip starts at the 3.58 timestamp. Yep. So and it goes to 526. Perfect. Here we go. Occasionally during this past year, I have been asked a question. Usually it comes as a curious, sometimes almost as an idle question about the qualification of one to stand as a special witness of Christ. The question they ask is, have you seen him? That is a question that I have never asked of another. I have not asked that question of my brethren in the quorum, thinking that it would be so sacred and so personal that one would have to have a special inspiration, even a special authorization, even to ask it. You know, there are some things that are just too sacred to discuss. We know that as it relates to our temples. In our temples, sacred ordinances are performed. I th is that 526 already, Bill? Are enjoyed. I'm sorry, no, no it's 503. Not. And yet, we do not discuss them because of the nature of them outside of those sacred walls. It is not that they are secret but they are sacred, things not to be discussed, but to be harbored and to be protected and to be regarded with the deepest of reverence. There you go. Thank you. Go ahead. Can I just say, I was telling you this morning when we were talking about these clips, it seems odd here because you're, you're, you're going to go to these next two sound bites out of the same talk. And I just want to set it up for folks. It seems odd here that he's telling the audience, look, this isn't something this isn't something we talk about. This isn't you have to you have to be inspired and maybe even authorized just to ask the question. And none of us uh, should be throwing out the answer to this question among those who have had experiences. And, and he seems to be saying again, talking about equivocation, he seems to be telling the audience you shouldn't ask it and we shouldn't be talking about it unless we choose to tell it on our own. Right. Yeah. Very good. And so there's a number of things. First off, I got to say, look how young he is. Oh, my gosh. Oh, yeah. 1971. What a handsome young apostle. His little family is still working at full speed. <laughs> okay. Yeah. And he'll come up with a talk about that before too long. Um, but yes, but notice a couple of things. You know, sometimes people will say, as a form of gaslighting, I think that, you know, members of the church don't really think that the apostles have seen Jesus. Where are you getting that idea? Well, when I grew up in the church, and I think when you grew up in the church, yeah, we both understood the apostles have seen 
Jesus. And speaking for myself, even after general, after general conference became boring to me, which was after like five minutes of the first general conference I ever watched in October of 1978, I would still watch and wait expectantly when the apostles spoke for their closing comments to see how strongly they could imply without saying it, that they had seen Jesus because I'm catch, I'm picking up on what they're laying down. I'm understanding. Yeah, you've seen Jesus. Just tell me how it is and use the words and I'll connect the dots. I was a willing, willing uh, receiver of the equivocation that they were putting out. Mm. And of course here, the very fact that, yeah, Mormons believe that apostles see Jesus is evidenced by this talk where he says, you know, I haven't been an apostle that long, but still I've got all these people coming up to me and asking me, have you seen him? Right. So obviously there's this expectation and it doesn't come out of nowhere, believe it or not, Bill. It is systematically um, I'm, I'm trying to say taught or suggested or um, inculcated. There we go. It's, it's uh, systematically inculcated in the minds of the members of the LDS church that the apostles have seen Jesus. And that's where they get this idea from. And that's why they're asking him the question. Okay. So now he's made it very clear. He gets this question. And then the first thing he does is he's not going to answer it. It's right. a yes or no question, right? Yeah. Okay. Yes or no. Elder Packer. No. Instead, he's going to start talking about how sacred it is. And how we don't talk about our most sacred experiences, not because they're secret, but because they're sacred. Why does he do that, Bill? Um, first off, the second anointing, right? The second anointing says it teaches us as leaders in the church who receive the second anointing. If you have, I haven't received it. I can't speak for everyone here, um, but I haven't. But they're taught that when you go to the second anointing, all of us, you and I, talked about this when we prepared for that episode we expected if we ever got the second anointing the second comforter we thought that included a visit by jesus christ to tell us that we had proven ourselves faithful and now it's time to enter into the rest of the lord when this life was over so on one account they learn it there another account is that um they don't the, the reason they're saying that is because they haven't seen jesus and it's the only way they can maintain the facade that one, we're prophets, seers, and revelators. And second, we have never seen Jesus ever and spoke to him. And, and to be honest, uh, he probably hasn't reanimated. You know what I mean? Right. The idea is to not answer the question, but to give the impression that they have right. seen him. Yep. And therefore they start talking. Because why would you be talking about experiences that are too sacred to discuss right after talking about this question? unless you really have seen him, but it's too sacred to discuss. So we are receiving, we're receiving the information, we're receiving the equivocation, Elder Packer, and we are interpreting it the way you want us to. Yes, we understand that you've seen Jesus, only you just can't say it for some reason. Yeah. I mean, like someone has mentioned, Joseph Smith didn't seem to have a lot of trouble talking about seeing Jesus and God in the sacred grove together with all these other angels. But now all of a sudden the apostles of today are reticent, they're bashful. They don't want to bear their witness. They don't want to be a special witness of Jesus Christ, the name of Jesus Christ, to all the world, which is what the scripture says anymore. Yeah. They don't want to talk about it, but they do want to give everybody the impression that they have. So that's the first thing. Now, if we can go to the second clip from this talk, and we'll try and speed it up here. I'm sorry, I'm getting too verbose. 
Later in the same talk, starting with timestamp 9.35, now he returns to this idea. And this goes to 10.40. So this is about a minute long. Okay. I said that there was a question that could not be taken lightly, nor answered at all without the promptings of the Spirit. I have not asked that question of others, but I have heard them answer it, but not when they were asked. They have answered it under the promptings of the Spirit on sacred occasions when the Spirit beareth record. I have heard one of my brethren declare, I know from experiences too sacred to relate that Jesus is the Christ. I have heard another testify, I know that God lives, I know that the Lord lives, and more than that, I know the Lord. It was not their words that held the meaning or the power, it. it was the Spirit, not that I heard. That's it, Bill. I felt. Okay. So now he goes to this part where he's going to double down and he's really, really going to try and suggest that even though he's not going to say it, but he's going to quote other apostles and their testimonies to try and get that impression out there completely that they have seen Jesus. Were you picking up on that, Bill? Yeah, but even if he repeats other brethren, isn't he still throwing pearls before swine? Isn't that still like, isn't he still breaking his own rule? No, because he's not saying it. He's, no, he's but, telling you what others have said. Yes, but they're not saying it either. But he's implying it so strongly and in the context that what he's communicating is, yes, they have seen him and here are their words that suggest that they've seen him, but the equivocation is still in full force. And the message is loud and clear. Don't ask anyway. Right. And so the final thing here is uh, same talk, 12.17. And this goes to 13.33. So this is just a little bit over a minute as he concludes the talk and gives his testimony. And of course, at the end of a talk like this, you can guess what that testimony is going to sound like. Huh, I wonder what. Now I wonder with you why one such as I should be called to the holy apostleship. There are so many qualifications that I lack. There is so much in my efforts to serve that is wanting. As I have pondered on it, I have come to only one single thing, one qualification in which there may be cause, and that is that I have that witness. I declare to you that I know that Jesus is the Christ. I know that he lived. He was born in the meridian of time. He taught his gospel, was tried, was crucified. He rose on the third day. He was the first fruits of the resurrection. He has a body of flesh and bone. Of this I bear testimony. Of him I am a witness. In the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, I just want to note before we continue, we'll get to another soundbite later on with a different church leader who will absolutely kind of counter that statement and say something very much the opposite of what President Packer just equivocated on. Yes. So this is, by the way, in case anybody's not picking up on this, 
This is the equivocation that we learned about in Macbeth manifesting itself in all its glory in the LDS church. That's the connection. That's why the title Macbeth and Mormonism. Okay. So let's go quickly to this next one because I'm going chronologically. That was from 1971. Can we go to 2014? This is general conference. It's a talk titled the witness. It's also given by Boyd K Packer. I think you'll notice he's a little bit older in this particular talk, but it's getting toward the end of his life. And once again, it's at the end of this talk and he will bear his witness in words that are meant to suggest, mm, I don't know, you'd be the judge. It starts at timestamp 13.00 and goes to 14.33. With all that I have experienced, there's one great truth that I would share. That is my witness of the Savior, Jesus Christ. Joseph Smith and Sidney Rigdon recorded the following after a sacred experience. And now, after the many testimonies which have been given of him, this is the testimony, last of all, which we give of him, that he lives, for we saw him. Their words are my words. I believe and I'm sure that Jesus the Christ, the Son of God, that he lives. He is the only begotten of the Father. By him and through him and all of him, the worlds are and were created, and the inhabitants thereof were begotten, sons and daughters of God. I bear my testimony that the Savior lives. I know the Lord. I am his witness. I know of his great sacrifice and eternal love for all of Heavenly Father's children. I bear my special witness in all humility, but with absolute certainty. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. I just want to note something. It's a little detail, it doesn't really matter much, but he's getting oxygen. It's wrapped around his glasses, if you see there. And uh, I just, I kind of sometimes think it's odd that these guys try to hide. You know, I've seen times where they have earpieces in where they're getting fed information. Um, it, it just seems like these guys never really want to be seen for the way the world would just normally do this and have oxygen going to someone's nose to kind of portray that you're almost uh, perfectly fine and healthy. Uh, people at the last general conference remarked that when they've seen Elder Holland out in public or Elder Oaks out in public, they are much more feeble than the impression we get watching them in conference. And uh, just a little side point. No, not a big deal here. I know what you mean because I hadn't actually noticed that. But if I had not noticed that little tube, that oxygen tube around his nose, I would have thought he was in perfect health. Yeah, right. Yeah, other than, yeah, I, I won't say anything. <laughs> <laughs> oh, somebody stop me. Okay, so, oh, by the way, but. Uh, for those who were paying attention, you'll notice what he did there. In addition to the usual tropes about I know him, right? He quotes uh, section 76 of the Doctrine and Covenants where Joseph Smith is talking about uh, him and Sidney Reagan having an actual vision that he's the son of God and we know this for we saw him. And then Elder Packer says, their words are my words. Yeah. So what he's saying is, well, excuse me, what he is suggesting so strongly that... It's hard to have any other interpretation is he has seen 
Jesus as well. Just like Joseph Smith, just like Sidney Rigdon. I've seen him too. If and I'm here to bear you my special witness. If you're going to say it, but pretend you're not saying it, but then you do say, why not just say it? You know, like just. Let's, because let's, that would be a lie. Point. Yeah. Because it, that would be a lie. Amen. Equip, look, you can just lie. You don't have to equivocate unless there's a reason that you don't want to lie. Okay. And usually the reason you don't want to lie is a, because you're following a moral code, which frowns on lying, which would be the case for the leaders of the church. I think, I think that they try and equivocate as much as they possibly can and give impressions about what they're saying without actually saying it in order to avoid breaking the sixth commandment. I believe it's six. That's bear false witness, but not to lie. Okay. And also you don't want to get caught because there's always a chance you could get caught when you're equivocating. So if you lie, you can get caught, but if you equivocate and you get caught, then you can retreat to your fallback position of what it was that you really meant. Right? Yeah. sounds like the Reed Smoot hearings. Yes, absolutely. So there we've got that. Now let's go on to 2015. That was 2014. We're going to go to 2015. This is Elder Dallin H. Oaks at the Boise Rescue, June 13th, 2005. He's at a special tri-state fireside in Boise, Idaho, along with his boy wonder companion, Richard Turley, uh, from the church historian's office at the time. And here's what he says. Now, this whole thing, in spite of the fact that Elder Oaks denied that this fireside was in response to the popularity of Denver Snuffer, who does claim to have seen Jesus, by the way. And he doesn't equivocate about it. He comes out and says, yeah, I saw him. And I've seen him more. Yes. So they're trying to fight against this, right? So he's talking about, and by the way, when he says, no, it wasn't about Denver Snuffer, that was just a lie. Okay. Sorry. It's obvious. Everything about this, this is hours long. It's obviously directed at Denver Snuffer without mentioning his name because everything they're talking about is trying to uh, contradict Denver Snuffer's teaching, put him in his place, right? And say, no, we're the true prophets, not that guy over here. We're the true prophets. But now he's got to deal with this whole thing about apostles being witnesses of Jesus because here's a guy who says he's seen Jesus and a lot of people are believing him. And everybody believes we've seen Jesus, and we've certainly fostered this idea. So now he's going to talk about this. This is a miracle of equivocation, because first off, he's going to say, just because we're witnesses of Jesus Christ. And by the way, I grew up, they're always talking about being special witnesses of Jesus Christ. Even their 2000 document that all the apostles and the first presidency signed is called, what is it, a special witness of the living Christ? Living Christ, yeah. And it, yeah, as witnesses, yeah. In the Doctrine and Covenants, though. It says they are witness, special witness of the name of Jesus. Now, yeah. you, I've never, I never hear that. I always hear special witness of Christ because they've seen him. But now Elder Oaks is going to fall back on, we're a special witness of the name of Jesus. He's gonna, and he's going to say, now to be an apostle, we're a, witness, a special witness of the name of Jesus, which doesn't mean we've seen him, but it just means we're a witness of his plan of salvation, his priesthood, those kinds of things, his church, right? But just because it doesn't mean that we haven't seen him doesn't mean that we haven't seen him. Did I get that right? I think I got that right. You nailed it. I'm only, I'm only pausing for a moment because I think it's important to note who the crowds are, who the audience is for each of these times that somebody's speaking general conference, believing membership. You don't go to general conference unless you're a believing member other than the one lady who raises her hand at the sustainings in the back, right? Or a glutton for punishment. 
Right. But everybody else is a hardcore believer. It's why you go to general conferences to see your prophets, seers, and revelators. It's a very different audience than this Boise Rescue, which are people who are having doubts about the modern church and recognize that there's this other guy who claims he's seen Jesus. And so they're also catering their words to each audience very distinctly and very different. That is a really good point. So this is from this uh, uh, Tri-State Fireside. The clip is two minutes long. It starts at 57.33 and it goes to 59.33. And you will hear this most masterful example of equivocation. Another claim we sometimes hear is that current apostles have no right to run the affairs of the church since they do not meet the New Testament standard of apostles because they do not testify, testify of having seen Christ. The first answer to this claim is that modern apostles are called to be witnesses of the name of Christ in all the world, Doctrine and Covenants, 107.23. This is not to witness of a personal manifestation. To witness of the name is to witness of the plan, the work, or mission, such as the atonement, and the authority or priesthood of the Lord Jesus Christ, which an apostle who holds the keys is uniquely responsible to do. Of course, apostles are also witnesses of Christ, just like all members of the church who have the gift of the Holy Ghost. This is because the mission of the Holy Ghost is to witness of the Father and the Son. Okay, now wait for it. In addition, while some early apostles and other members of the church have had the sublime spiritual experience of seeing the Savior, and some have made a public record of this, in the circumstances of today, we are counseled not to speak of our most sacred spiritual experiences. Otherwise, where are they? Where are they counseled that originally? The second anointing, right? Right, exactly. They are supposed to say, if anybody asks them if they've seen Jesus, they're supposed to do the copyrighted LDS dodge which is to say we have been counseled not to speak of our most sacred experiences because it gives the impression they have seen them even though they haven't. Right. In the second anointing, you don't see Jesus. Right. And what he's just saying, you're supposed to, everybody thinks so, but then you don't. So you got to give the impression because the kids are thinking you saw Jesus and you don't want to disappoint the kids. It's Christmas morning and Santa really was here. And he's the one who took the bite out of the cookie. And that's why the milk glass is half full. Santa was here. That's the proof. And the and what the little gates on the, the fireplace or open and there's a little bit of soot coming out from the chimney you know all those proofs and evidences that santa really is real but now notice what he's done and i think there's a little bit more isn't there there is no 20 seconds okay what he's done is saying okay now just because we're apostles doesn't mean we actually have seen jesus because we only are special witnesses of the name of jesus and then he says but there were accounts of people early in the church like joseph smith who have seen jesus then he shifts and says, but under the circumstances of today, we have been counseled not to share our most sacred experiences. What is he implying? Yeah. And he also says that we are in the same way that all kind of members of the church, right? We have the spirit and we, 
join in communion with each other and we feel good about it. And so, hey, we're all special witnesses. Those two things were fine. The first thing and the second thing were fine, but he can't help himself. He still has to try and equivocate on the issue of their having seen Jesus by yeah. saying other people saw Jesus. But today we've been counseled not to share our most uh, sacred or spiritual experiences. And if you yeah. Yeah, if you can go from there. And that and that experience was an instance where they didn't see Christ. Right. And that's what, told, yeah, and told to that's answer. what made it so sacred. Yeah. Amen. That can broadcast something all over the world. A remark made in a sacred and private setting can be sent abroad in violation of the Savior's commandment not to cast our referrals before swine. There you go. Don't we, don't we set up the first discussion? Maybe we don't do it anymore. I don't know what we teach anymore. But um, President Hinckley felt the same way. When, when these guys go out on a mission— uh, when I, missionaries came to my home, they told me about Joseph Smith's sacred experience in the Grove, and they used it as a way that I could know things. I didn't mean to throw you off there. I almost and, had uh, Diet Coke coming out my nose. Thank so you, Mr. Rio. Yeah, and it, it just seems to me that we really have no problem saying when certain people have seen Jesus so long as they lived 200 years ago, and there's no way to prove they didn't. But in the modern sense— because we're not doing so good at leading the church on social issues, and we seem to have no, anything but the ear or the mouth of Jesus against our ears, uh, whispering sweet nothings and telling us how to do things. We don't want to be caught with our pants down. It, it just seems like the church really doesn't have a problem saying somebody saw Jesus. They tell us Joseph Smith did all the time. Um, it seems only that these modern leaders don't want to get caught lying. Yes, exactly. And he's going to say that, you know, Today, we don't do it because something that I might say in this private tri-state you know, conference where nobody's supposed to be recording, but somebody is, that that could be taken and then broadcast to all the world and people would make fun of it. Well, the thing is that in Doctrine and Covenants, when it talks about apostles being special witnesses of the name of Christ, it goes on and says, in all the world. I mean, this is in their job description. They're supposed to be bearing witness of Jesus and his name in all the world. So I don't know why it is that he would think it a bad thing if somebody took this and then broadcast it to all the world because that's what he's supposed to be doing. Additionally, Joseph Smith, seeing God the Father in Jesus Christ, is published in, well, what is it published? I think it's in, I know it's in the Joseph Smith History and the Pearl of Great Price, which is published, and we want to get everybody in the world to read that. It's probably also in the introduction to the Book of Mormon. Yeah, it's got to sure. come follow me. It's got to be in lots of places. That It's churches. everywhere. Yeah. We have no problem publishing that to all the world. And so I have trouble thinking that he's really being honest with his reason for not wanting to just answer the question. And, and just a note, I, I remember listening to this in one of your early episodes, and it might have been the one about have they seen Jesus, which I shared in the in the comments. So everybody got the episode link. But the apostolic charge today that Hubie Brown informed us is that they're all going to vote in unison, even if, they, even if they disagree. But the original apostolic charge was given by the three witnesses, at least Oliver Cowdery, if not mistaken. And it was given to the Quorum of the Twelve. And they were told that what makes them witnesses is they had to go seek out a personal face-to-face you know, person-to-person -person visitation with Jesus Christ himself. And that's what separated the Quorum of the Twelve as special witnesses, only to have those men go like, hey, we tried and nothing happened. So now we need a new apostolic charge, which means we all agree, which is a pretend way to portray revelation. Right. It sounds like equivocation to me. It does, doesn't it? 
Can we go to the next one? This is wonderful. I think we need to have time for a woman's voice. There's been too many men speaking. Ah, Please. oh, there's yes. one. There we now, go. This is from January of 2016. Is that true? Yes, it is January 10th, 2016. This is Wendy Watson, the first lady of the LDS church. And she's going to give this incredible example of equivocation. I won't even introduce it. I'll just let you play it. And it is toward the end of her talk. This is from the from Hawaii, the young adult devotional, where she speaks immediately before her husband. Timestamp 9.05 to 10.07. Just, just a little quick note, which is she has really enjoyed a prominence that most prophets' wives don't enjoy in the LDS church. I think she's in for a rude awakening when President Nelson passes away. She will be escorted to the shadows of Mormon history and uh, into, into the closet and never to come out again. Well, the way President Nelson's ticker is going, I think he's going to be burying her. <laughs> Here we go. True selves, my dear brothers and sisters whom I love, the reality is that someday you and I will each have an individual face-to-face -face interview with the Savior himself. When this eventuality becomes real to us, we will be willing to do whatever it takes to be prepared. So now a question as I conclude. What if you learned that the Savior had already returned to this earth, that he as part of his second coming, had already met with some of his true followers in several marvelous large gatherings, gatherings about which the world, including CNN and the blogosphere, knew nothing. If you found out that the Savior was already on the earth, what would you desperately want to do today? And what would you be willing and ready to do tomorrow? There you go. I pray. <laughs> what if? I mean, hypothetically. <laughs> what if Jesus what if, was already here? What if Jesus was already here and then I'm going to give you all this detail about this what if scenario and say that nobody knows about it? You know, uh, CNN doesn't know about it. Social media doesn't know about it. Thank you very much, Doug Vincent, for your kind contribution. Nobody knows about it. That's why you don't know about it. But I know about it because I'm Mrs. Soon to be the prophet. And what would you do? I was stunned when she said this because it was such a flagrant uh, attempt at equivocation. It's like there were flags all over the field when she was speaking. It was so bad. And she's just trying to tell everybody this is what's happening. But that's actually not what she's saying. You think about what it is she's saying in the words she's using. No. And... What if she met with lots of people? Somebody pointed out, like, how do you get to be in that cool club? Well, you have to have your second anointing. Those are the people that are obviously going to meet with Jesus when he comes back, if he hasn't already. Right. Right. He's already here. I mean, he can't just come back without having some meetings to plan for it. This sounds like the Jehovah's Witnesses, right? Like Jehovah, they had him coming back in like 1904 and then back in 1912 and then 1914. And he never showed up. So then they argued he'd already come. Nobody just nobody noticed. Yeah, he descended toward Earth. He didn't quite make touchdown, but then he achieved a stationary orbit. <laughs> which which violates all the laws of science and all the all the satellite footage. <laughs> and the thing that's great about uh, Sister Watson here is that she's doing this in order to get the audience to be willing to sacrifice anything and everything to be ready 
for this because he's meeting with people. I mean, is this the Mormon Jesus or what? He has to have meetings with uh, the leaders of the church in order to arrange for his second coming. Yeah. You haven't been at this meeting, right? Where Jesus is already here and showed up. You, you haven't, I mean, cause you haven't really confirmed whether you've gotten the second anointing or not. And no, but by the way, this is a great, great example of the equivocation. And I'm still not going to confirm or deny it here, but a number of, uh, there's a number of episodes ago. I just start riffing about this thing. I can't confirm or deny because I've been instructed not to share my yeah. most sacred experiences. Right. And I'm yeah. doing this kind of deadpan and people are listening and somebody over on Reddit, ex Mormon Reddit starts a post about good grief. Did you hear what radio free Mormon said? Has he actually seen him? I don't think he has, but maybe he has received a second anointing. And all these people are saying, no, nah, it's just a joke, I think, because he makes kind of jokes like this. But who knows if he's being serious? It is so easy to do this kind of stuff, even the people who um, should be better attuned to weed out the quackery. Yeah. Amen. Uh, somebody pointed out, nice deflection. Way to change the question. I kind of posed to you whether you'd received it. You moved on to defining equivocation again with that example. But you you haven't, and nor do I expect you to answer us tonight. I can't. I have taken solemn oaths. <laughs> I have. Uh, yes. Amen. And that's equivocation, too, because I want you to think that solemn oaths have to do with not revealing the second anointing. But I didn't yeah. say that, did I? But you're not going to tell us what those solemn oaths are. But I did not say that either. Mm. And that's like yeah. Elder Oaks. Just because we don't have to have seen him, but just because we don't have to have seen him doesn't mean we haven't seen him. And by the way, we've been instructed not to share our most sacred experiences. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Uh, he was like a pretzel after that one. So, but but now we get back to Elder Oaks again in the chronological timeline. In the very same month that Wendy Watson tells that whopper, on January 10th, 2016, I think she must be a Burger King fan. She likes whoppers. You go to like 13 days later. On January 23rd, 2016, and this is Elder Oaks. Now, it's at a fireside. It's at a multi-stake youth fireside. It's in Bellevue, Washington. Nobody's supposed to be recording. They get the instruction out up front, but apparently there are some naughty younger people who are recording anyway. Here is Elder Oaks apparently admitting that he hasn't seen an angel or had an experience like Alma the Younger where the angel comes down and, you know, strikes him. Uh, unconscious for a while. Uh, he hasn't received that kind of experience. And then he goes on to say that none of his brethren in the apostleship have received that kind of experience either. Now, the reason he gets caught off guard here is because the gal who asks the question doesn't say, have you seen him? That's easy to see coming. You can see that coming from a mile away. You go right into, hey, we've been instructed not to share our most spiritual experiences, right? You're ready for that. She doesn't do that. And I'm not saying she's trying to do this intentionally and to catch him off guard, but she asks a question about what does she need to do to develop faith so that she can have an experience like Alma the Younger had, right? So Elder Oaks, in addressing that question, inadvertently tips his hand and the hands of everybody else who's a leader of the church. This is from... My question is, what should we pray for to receive this same if not conversion, that Alma the Younger experienced for our friends that aren't. I missed the words Alma the Younger, uh, without which I couldn't understand that very fine question. What should you pray for to have the kind of experience that Alma the Younger had? 
I don't think you're likely to have the kind of experience that Alfred the Younger had. Remember, he had a miraculous appearance of an angel and, uh, and really got hit over the head spiritually. Most of us don't have that kind of experience. But I interpret your question, Heather, as being how can we get the kind of, of uh, testimony that we receive? I don't think we'll, we'll get it like Paul did on the road to where the angel appeared to him or where the Alvin the Younger had that startling experience. Uh, the Lord gives a few of those kinds of experiences and they're recorded in the scriptures to catch our attention which is the answer. But I've never had an experience like that. And I anyone among the first presidency or quorum of the twelve who had that kind of experience. Yet every one of us knows of a certainty the things that Alma knew. But it's just that unless the Lord chooses to do it another way, as he sometimes does, for millions and millions of his children, the testimony settles upon us gradually like so much dust on or so much do of the grass. One day you didn't have it, and another day you did, and you don't know which day you have. That's the way I got my testimony. And go. then I knew it was true, but it continued to grow. There you go, that's enough. Okay, so leaving aside the inapt metaphor of a testimony settling on his soul like dust on a windowsill, which he, I think, recognizes and then changes it to being dew on the grass, right? It's an astonishing admission from Elder Oaks. And I know there's someone walking and you hear footsteps and there's a creaking chair that wasn't my chair that was somebody at the fireside. But what he says is, talking about uh, Alma's experience seeing an angel or Paul's experience on the road to, and of course it's Damascus, he couldn't come up with the, the name of the city at the time. But they're similar incidents, in fact, Alma the Younger appears to be derivative of the, the Paul story. But having an angel or Jesus appearing in the Paul story, right? And then he says, I have never had that kind of experience. And as far as I know, neither has any member of the first presidency or the quorum of the 12 apostles. None of us have had that kind of experience, Heather. And thank you for so effectively getting me to admit that on tape. Yeah, it was quite telling, wasn't it? Like, if you listen to all those sound bites together, Elder Oaks, that one right there is really the one that counts, where he is saying, look, none of us have any kind of uh, mystical experience where some angelic visitor shows up uh, and converts us to the gospel of Jesus Christ or has us uh, having some kind of spiritual experience that enlarges our testimony. Well, you're, you're muted. <clears throat> uh, it's only happened once so far. I think that's a plus for me. Yeah. No, and he knows Elder Boyd K. Packer. They served on the Quorum of the Twelve for a long period of time together for decades, right? He knows all the apostles. He knows the members of the First Presidency. So who is it that Wendy was talking about 13 days before when she's insinuating that Jesus has had several meetings, large meetings with his closest disciples? Well, apparently it's not with the first presidency of the Quorum of the Twelve, because Dallin Oak says 13 days later that, as far as he knows, none of them have ever seen him. 
Jesus or an angel or had that kind of an experience. So something's going on here. And I think it's pretty easy to say the truth is what Elder Oaks just said. And yet it was Elder Oaks who the year before at the Boise Rescue is trying to insinuate that, yeah, they have seen him because they're instructed not to share their most spiritual experiences. So having said all of that, having said all of that, now we're going to get to the most recent one, which is 2019. And by the way, I need to thank uh, Jonathan Streeter for collecting a lot of these quotes. You'll see that uh, they appear with uh, the little brain. It's Thinker of Thoughts, his website. And that's where we're getting a lot of these from. They're up on YouTube. So thankful to him for that. There was a listener who pointed my attention out to this Elder Cook comment that we're going to play last. Now, with all of this in mind, listen to what Elder Cook says in his closing comments. And once again, this isn't general conference. This is a, a private thing. It's not supposed to be recorded, I believe. Actually, let me check my notes here because I should have something on that. Yeah, this is a testimony given at a regional conference for young married couples under the age of 30 and those married less than five years because you've got to really make sure that you get only the right people who are attending these regional conferences. This talk was given in Murray, Utah on January 26, 2019 and listen to Elder Cook equivocate. Our primary responsibility is to be a witness of Jesus Christ. And the reason I've gone through this with you is I want to bear a simple witness to you that I hope you'll remember because it's a true witness and I'm going to say it in a way that I'm hopeful that you'll remember it very well. I had had experiences that were a very spiritual nature before that and I've had them even more so since being called to the twelve. I know, having worked on Preach My Gospel, and many of you are missionaries that have had Preach My Gospel, that we don't share sacred experiences. We don't share the details of them. The Lord can't trust us if we do. And so I've determined that I would bear this witness in a way that would be significant to you, but wouldn't violate any of the trust that I've received. Can you stop it for just a second, Bill? I there's a well, thousand well, well, reasons that Jesus might not trust these guys. <laughs> That's what I was the thinking. Least of which, you've got Quentin L. Cook, the the guy who did the conflict of interest thing with the hospitals, yeah. in Marin County that we covered a few weeks ago, and he's sitting there saying, you know, uh, we can't share these personal experiences. We can't just come out and tell you that Jesus appeared to us; otherwise, he won't trust us. Doesn't that seem so? blatantly so, such blatant bullshit you know yes it absolutely is because jesus appears to him and then you know it makes him pinky swear don't tell anybody i was here uh, if, but you can but you can insinuate it all you want just don't come out and say it if christ got past the hospital escapade and still had some trust in in, in quentin cook and then pulled it back because Quentin Cook told people he saw Jesus when in fact he did. Then Jesus becomes kind of a hypocrite himself, doesn't he? Well, he's busy remembering Quentin L. Cook's sins no more. Yeah. <laughs> it's such good stuff. So I'm sorry, if you can go back just a little bit, because now he's going after having said all this stuff and we're told not to share our most personal exper or spiritual experiences, because if we do, Jesus can't trust us. Yeah. Now, let me insinuate the hell out of the idea that I've actually seen Jesus. <laughs> I simply want to witness to you 
but I know the Savior's voice, and I know the Savior's face. I'm a sure witness of the divinity of Jesus Christ. There it is. What do you think of that? Uh, I, I don't know how to tell you, but that's absolute bullshit, knowing Quentin Cook's character and how he broke codes of ethics earlier, became a apostle. I'm delighted to be with Oops, you. Sorry. My that's good old Neil Maxwell. Um, it what? strikes me as so weird that these guys can't tell you the truth. But basically what they're saying is Jesus and the rest of my brethren don't want me telling you the truth. If I tell you the truth, I lose trust. But if I just equivocate, then I maintain the trust. So we all have to choose our words carefully. Yeah, Jesus uh, is okay with you implying it, but he just doesn't want you to say it. No, right. You're allowed to imply it, which seems even, I don't know, that seems even shadier than just saying it. And to bring this back to Macbeth and in conclusion, to tie it up with what I hope is a nice bow, when I finally get to the point where I realize these guys haven't seen Jesus and they have just been shining me on for 40 years. All of a sudden, it makes me think of what is said by Macbeth when he starts coming to the same realization about how he has been equivocated upon. And he begins to doubt the equivocation of the fiend that lies like truth. And then finally, this poignant expression. And be these juggling fiends no more believed that palter with us in a double sense, that keep the word of promise to our ear and break it to our hope. Mm. Mm -mm -mm. That's why Shakespeare is still done 400 years later and will continue to be done 400 years in the future. Yeah. All right. Well, if there's nothing else, I'll put the banner up for the for the phone calls. Uh, 435-200-3478 or 435-200-FIST, right? Yeah, sorry. I was, I was just so going, oh, my gosh. Whew. I finally got done with that. I've been rereading Macbeth, which I usually try and do this time of year, but really trying to put all these thoughts together and present it in what I hope was a compelling and understandable way. No, I, I thought it was great. And I, I think, you know, the classical literature that you've read and, and remembered so much of, I think, is so interesting anyway. But then tying some of these things back into Mormonism, I, I think anytime we gain information and we learn new things and we take on new concepts or we understand new stories, we get to apply them to the things we already held. And uh, I think it's always uh, beneficial. I think Shakespeare has been a help to you in how you become a critical thinker. Um any thoughts from you before I take a phone call? No, just glad that it is done. Uh, we put this one in the record books. Happy to hear the questions that listeners have or the comments that they may have. Jo Josh, you are on Mormonism Live with Bill Real and Radio Free Mormon. Uh, what do you think of Macbeth and uh, LDS oh. Apostles having seen Jesus? Oh, uh, well, you know, it's, I, for like, for if I understand correctly, Shakespeare sort of had powerful um, patrons and also, um, you know, he had to kind of write in a way that wouldn't piss off the powers of the time, and namely the uh, Elizabethan and the, you know, the Stuart monarchies, right? Yeah. And so he had to, he had to kind of write to avoid that because he was writing about regicide, which, you know, 
you know, the form of government was an absolute monarchy. So he had, it, it would make sense that uh, Mormonism and kind of uh, a Shakespeare, Macbeth kind of uh, bear a resemblance to one another because it's about power, right? And, um, you know, Shakespeare kind of had to um, <clears throat> write in favor of, of the king uh, or, you know, one of the characters, Banquo, yeah, was the uh, ancestor of James the uh, James the First of Scotland, who was also um, James VI, no James the Sixth of Scotland, who was also James the First of England. Uh, anyways, not to get too much into the weeds, I just feel like uh, you know there's equivocating all over the place, you know, and yeah, that's my final thought. Perfect, thank you, my friend. Yeah, they are, and I'll tell you, thank you for the comment, Josh. Uh, Shakespeare did get into hot water with a production that uh, he was asked to do with his company of Richard II, because there's a certain deposition. And by that, I mean, deposing of the king scene that was in there, got him in trouble. He got out of hot water. And fortunately, he had some friends in high places. No, sorry. So our uh, our next caller is Nicola. Nicola, you are on Mormonism Live with Radio Free Mormon and Bill Real. What are your thoughts uh, on tonight's subject? Well, I thought it was really, really good, of course. Um, but I think that uh, the the whole thing about this whole spiritual thing has kind of uh, done my head in because I had I had experiences when I, when I was in the church and I tried my best to be able to say that all of those things don't happen didn't happen to me and I can't and I don't believe in the church and I know that they've lied to me but there are things that are that happened to me that I don't know why they happened to me I can't explain them I can some of the things that happened to me I can turn around and I can say this is why this happened to me. Like I had an experience when I was on my mission with the uh, mission president. Uh, basically what happened to me was I woke up and I couldn't move. And I was really worried because my companion, was previous companion kept going about Satan. So I figured that I'd been attacked by Satan or something. So I go to my mission president, I tell him about it. And he says to me, don't eat too much cheese. I later find out that um, there's different stages of sleep and I've woken up in one of these rim stages of sleep and that's why I can't move but I didn't know that at the time when I was in the church so that was a spiritual experience I was able to say right that's the reason why I also had my dad tell me that he saw uh, um, he had some vision that led him set, that told me that he knew that Harry Billy was a prophet and then when I went back to him and told him all this stuff then he recounted his experience, and I'm like, oh, you mean to say that you flipping lied to me and told me all this stuff? But I also had some experiences that have happened that I cannot say that I can't. Um, I had the biggest thing that happened to me, and my husband's like, well, things just happen. And I'm like, I basically, when I went through all this, because I've had all these experiences, I said, I, I prayed. And when I was praying on the way out, I was like, having these experiences just like mormon dis, uh, um, priest or dispatch guy was saying i've had these experiences i can't explain why i i've had them but 
the biggest thing that happened to me was that um, after I, I said to, like, Heavenly Father, I, like, prayed and I said, look, I'm either seriously me- mentally ill because I've had these experiences or these things have happened to me. If you're angry with me, just obliterate me and I don't want to live. But if you are really there, then fix my... I had this diamond ring that I had this ex-boyfriend push against the glass and it made like a rut in it, like when a tire goes through mud and it was like destroyed. I just said, just fix the diamond ring. And I can't... The diamond ring's fixed. I can't explain that. And everybody just says to me, like... Um, people like I've heard them, they say, look, you need to get over it. It's been over 10 years. And the best thing that I heard was that Mormon dispatch thing where I know there's other people that have had these experiences that they, I've even talked to non-members that have had experiences that they cannot explain. So I don't think that, I think that these things that are there that are, that are out there, I can't explain why they happen. I don't know why they've happened to me. I had this one experience on my mission where I heard this voice and um, I was meant to go to this guy's house and I'm like, well, Heavenly Father, I can't do that. That's against, my companion needs to be in on that. And my companion turns around and goes to me, we need to go see this person. I've just had this really big prompting that we need to go to the person. Uh, And then the flipping guy comes up on a bike and says, I need to, I need to see you. So then I see the guy, and we go and we we make an appointment. We like I'm like right, we'll come down and we'll see you. And so we go to, and then he he says that he's done this flipping um, arm robbery and that he needs to confess and everything. And so I do not believe that God can totally be angry with anybody out there. And obviously, some people have these experiences. I also, when my mum died, she died in she died in. a really bad way. I had this like blanket of, I just felt like I was getting some spiritual experience and it was all right. And I was able to deal with her, her, her death, although that her death was like a, but I do believe there's a lot of stuff that people go, I have never, I don't believe. When I went through the temple, it was the most awful <clears throat> experience that I've ever had in my life. And I made my dad write his story down for me because I was going on a mission and I was only going on a mission because my brother thinking told me that he um basically he was saying that he didn't want to go he didn't want to go on his mission that he um basically I didn't understand and I I made a pact with my brother that I'd go on a mission because he didn't want to go on a mission I said well we'll just do it together and that was the only reason that I went on my mission was because he didn't want to go. And I'm like, I thought to myself, how can I flip and send a son on a mission if I don't know? But when I went through the temple, I was like, I, I prayed and prayed and prayed to know whether the church was true and whether this was right and that was that right. And I mean, the flipping second verse of the Book of Mormon talks about what language. How books? Do, how many books do you know that that go on about what language? That, that they you're written in it. That's the only book that I know that says it's written in that language. There's so many things. Yeah. Like you don't Nicola. have to know everything. There's only there's only like five things you have to know yeah. to know that the church isn't true. Yeah. I'm just saying I don't understand any of this. Yeah. Stuff. Let, I just can't. Let Let me spend a moment with you here. So, Nicola is your name, right? Yes. Okay, Nicola. Um, I joined the church when I was 17, and I had 
what I would call a deeply magnificent spiritual experience entering Mormonism. And uh, I served as a bishop and I had really awesome experiences that at the time felt like that's the only interpretation I could give them was that Mormonism was true and that God was working within the LDS church. Since then, I, I'm an atheist today, and, and I, I don't want to dispute or debate whether there's a God or not a God. I would only say that there are, there are number one, there are coincidences that seem miraculous, but in, in an earth of billions and billions of people and, and lasted billions and billions of years, there is undoubtedly going to be strange things that happen that seem on the surface to be only defined as, as a miracle. First. Second, I would add this. Uh, I would suggest go watch last week's episode that RFM and I did. We talked at length about spiritual experiences outside of Mormonism and spiritual experiences inside Mormonism and how the church trains you or brainwashes you or programs you to interpret those experiences as they happen. But to recognize, just as you're pointing out, that there are atheist, and there are people within every faith system who have what appears to them to be miraculous experiences that seem to happen within a certain faith system to them and seems to be saying the truth of that faith system. I would just simply suggest that once you recognize that people all across the earth uh, are having spiritual experiences, and many of them happen within the lens or paradigm of the faith system or beliefs that they hold, and that none of those, once they're all added up together, seem to not point to any one faith system being true. I, or, I agree with that. So I, I totally agree with that. Yeah. So what I'm what I'm suggesting is that once I saw that every faith system has people who have them, and that they happen all across time and space, um, at that point I just took them as. They are. Let me give it a little example. I, I left Mormonism. I was excommunicated and I, and I gone. Uh, I'm not I'm not a member of that church anymore because they got rid of me. My life for the last, you know, umpteen years since that's happened and before when I lost my testimony and stopped believing, um, my life's never been better. Like things have just gone well. And um, I, I had a I went to a reggae concert this week and we started off the program talking about that. And I ran into my cousin and her husband, who I love. They're they're like my closest cousins uh, in my family. And I ran into them at the concert and it was such a a miracle in some way uh, to run into them, to them to go from Ohio to Las Vegas, me to drive the two hours, go to a concert and to be sitting like 15 feet from them when the, when she texted me and said, are you here? And I said, yep. And I looked over to my right. And she looked over to her left and there she was. It, sometimes things just seem to be miraculous when in fact maybe they're not, or maybe they are, but they don't necessarily point to any one thing being the the truth. I don't I don't I don't think that they point that the church is true. I don't believe that the, that they mean that the church is true. I just like people are like, you should be over this, but now I'm like yeah. how I can't I can't be yeah. over the fact that these things have happened to me because yeah, I can't get over. I can't get over those things because yeah. I know them, and I'm norm. I say now, like when that ring, that really freaked me out totally. I mean, how does a how does a ring fix itself? Yeah, and what? I mean, I wouldn't lie because my dad lied to me yeah. all those years when I was Mormonism. Then yeah. when I found out about all the stuff that was going, 
My, my two cents is just look at the universe and say thank you and uh, not feel pressured or manipulated anymore. Like I can stop today, not feeling pressured or manipulated anymore to have to put those experiences well, I, into I a box. Actually, I actually resigned and this happened to me yeah. after I resigned. So yeah. if God was really angry, he wouldn't basically let these things. I, 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 re I resigned and I've had experiences happen to me after I resigned because I wanted to know if I could still have these experiences after I resigned. It was important to me yeah. enough to know. Because I know that those people, I can see that everything that you're saying about these people, I can see that they're like lying to us. They, they're doing the same thing as my dad. Uh, why my dad did that to me, I cannot understand why he did it. I was flipping six years old and he told me that he had seen a bright light that told him that Caribbean and he'd seen Har uh, Lee and that he was a prophet of God. Well, that's how you believe your dad. Yeah. No, I get it. I, I, I have to move on from the call to get a couple other callers in, okay. but I, I simply want to yeah, say I I'm appreciate it. No, 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 so, my no, 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 sorry at all. You. No, sorry at all. I appreciate so much the phone call. And I think I, I know I have friends who have been out of the church for years and they're still wrestling with the emotional programming that's gone on. Um, whether there's a God or there isn't a God, when good things happen, I would just simply be grateful for the blessings that you get. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. No problem. Have a beautiful night, my friend. All right. Thank you. Bye-bye. What I, what I got, there's, there's a lot of stories there, but what I got from Nicola is the pressure internal to us by the, the programming that happens to constantly try to fit these things into stories that we've been given, whether we believe in Mormonism anymore or not, it becomes really difficult to just have a coincidence be a coincidence. Right. And uh, the image that just came to me when you were talking about that is the spiritual experiences are water. But the church has a certain vessel that they want to pour that water into. So it takes the shape of the vessel. And other people will have a different shape vessel that they want to pour the water into. And what I got from what you were saying, which I thought was really brilliant, was you don't need to have a vessel. Okay, just appreciate the water. It doesn't have to fit in somebody's vessel for you to appreciate it and just say thank you to the universe. By the way, I would also say to Nicola, I had a number of comments. I won't go into all of them, but I would say that in January of 2020, I went down to St. George to give a speech in front of their, their group down there, their uh, post-Mormon support group. And I addressed this very issue. And it's up as an RFM, Radio Free Mormon podcast, and it's called uh, dealing with spiritual experiences. And it talks about my own evolution and my thoughts about spiritual experiences that I have had and do not deny having had them and trying to look at them from this point in my journey and make sense of them. And I think now I'm able to make much better sense of them than I was earlier on. Beautiful, beautiful. Uh, caller, you're going to be our last caller of the night. Uh, tell us your name, and uh, you're on Mormonism Live with Radio Free Mormon and Bill Real. And uh, what did you think of tonight's program? Yeah, my name is Matt, and uh, love this podcast. I've been a listener for a while. It's the first time I've got uh, listened to it live and called in. Um, a big eye-opener that I noticed tonight that I've never noticed before is that the church leaders— in, in official capacities, such as general conference or manuals, they really talk the big game, you know, 
we are apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, alluding to possibly having seen Jesus face to face, stuff like that. And they stand by that in official capacities. But some of these videos that you played tonight, I've never seen before, uh, where you just hear the audio of these meetings where they're face to face with members or with, with youth. And suddenly that big game just goes crashing down. And they're just like, you know what? We're just like you. Uh, we've never had these experiences. And it's just crazy. And I think that the church leaders are starting to very noticeably slip, try to slip out of this, this whole narrative that's been going for a century, that, that these men are called by God and that are men of God that commune with him. And uh, I just, tonight's, uh, some of those videos you played just really opened my eyes to that. So thank you so much. Thank you very much, Matt. Have a great night, my friend. Thank you, Matt. And someone, I think it was Charlie Jones, who just made a comment that you had put up for a second there. Bill, could you put that up again? Because I thought that was so important in light of what Nicola had to say and the obvious distress that she's experiencing. Yeah, Charlie Jones says, and that is why these podcasts are important. Mormonism harms. It looks benign, but it is so harmful. And I, I certainly think that my experience has been that, um, you know, I, it was very helpful to me in my earlier stages. Uh, it's helpful to a lot of people, but that doesn't take away the fact that it is harmful to some people. And I think Nicola is an excellent example of how it can be harmful to a person and program them in such a way that they have left the church. Apparently, I think that's what Nicola mm -hmm. said, or she doesn't believe it anymore. And yet she is still finding herself subject to these mind manipulations that she learned as a member of the church. And even from her father talking about seeing Harold B. Lee in a, some kind of light when she was six years old. So these are the kind of things that um, can happen to people when we are not honest and when we engage in the equivocation that's set forth not only in Macbeth, but in McMormon. When, when you talked about equivocation, it, in its most innocent forms, we sometimes feel awkward in situations and we don't know, we're, we're uncertain. And so sometimes we equivocate because we're, we're really not sure what to say or what to do. But in its most unhealthy forms, equivocation can almost be a form of gaslighting because it because it, it screws up your reality. And when when you're taught that these guys are a certain thing, and then these guys don't then these guys make the mistakes that somebody of that of that actual mantle wouldn't make. Like it's one thing to go, hey, I'm gonna change church from three hours to two hours, but then prophet seer and revelator, quorum of the twelve, first presidency, and the guy at the very top, the president of the church go decades and decades and decades, over a hundred years, uh, believing that people of color were cursed in the pre-mortal life, or at one time teaching that handicapped people were less valiant in the pre-earth life. And then in today's terms, try to be ambiguous and um, deflect away from the question, but still say it with, a, with, with obfuscation, essentially. What you're doing is you're effing up people's reality. And you're giving people this shifting, moving goalpost that they can never really understand how these rules apply and whether they've seen them or whether they haven't and what should we expect or what should we not expect. And in its cruelest form, this almost comes across as gaslighting and really screwing up people's reality. And you can see with Nicola and her father, and I think in these instances with LDS leaders, 
Stop telling us that you can't tell the truth because Jesus would lose trust in you. Just tell the truth. And I'm pretty sure Jesus will be okay with that. Yeah, I think Jesus is going to trust you more if you tell the truth. I think so, too. I'm just guessing here. Yeah. So uh, anyway, I, I, I don't have anything else to add. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a little touched by her call. I, uh, this thing, this system, and all of its leaders, it, it teaches its members that we're the lazy learners and we're the ones who wanted to sin and we're the ones who don't value the truth. And when you get what they're doing, it really is evil. It really is uh, at its core. Yeah. Anyway, anything else from you before I close out, my friend? No, that's it. But we continue to work toward the debate in Salt Lake City on the weekend of November 14th. There is not a place selected yet. There is not a evening, a evening, an evening selected yet. But it should be Friday, Saturday, or Sunday, the 12th, 13th, or 14th. Uh, Radio Free Mormon versus Midnight Mormons. Yeah. And I hope like hell they don't equivocate. Mormonism live. Better than touching your own little factory. Yeah.